good morning. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. This is another one of those texts that I would rather chat with you about than preach on. I uh, wish we could take a long walk down the green belt or uh, sit across uh, from one another at a table with a cup of coffee and uh, just uh, talk about this passage. In my, in my thinking, this is one of the key passages in all of the New Testament. And uh, uh, if you look at it one way, it seems very, very simple, very obvious. Paul is very much up front. But yet it raises almost as many questions as it answers. And uh, that's why I would like to be able to sit down and talk about this passage and uh, let you ask some of the questions that may come to mind as we, as we look at it. But since I am compelled to preach this morning, and uh, since there are too many of you to walk down the green belt with, uh, I will simply talk about this passage. And if you have any questions, I would encourage you to come up front after the service or to uh, call me this week, and we can talk further about it. I, I am convinced that we all know what it means to be good. No one has to tell us. Uh, philosophers have uh, uh, long noted that most of the truth in the world is already known. They talk about recognition or recognition is the word that they use. We know again and again the same things. And when a truth is taught, very often our response is, aha, sure, that's what ought to be. Uh, a certain truth is stated and it sets up a resonance in our hearts. And we know, we know that that's true. That's why Pascal, the Italian physicist and philosopher, said the heart has reasons that reason doesn't know. Our heart just knows. It recognizes truth. And when we say that the qualities of life that are worth attaining are things like love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control, uh, our heart sets up a, a kind of sympathetic vibration. We, we agree. That's the kind of person that we want to be. Or you read uh, John uh, George MacDonald's uh, uh, quotation in the front of the bulletin, and it just makes sense. We long to be that kind of person. But the question is how. How can we be good? That's, that's the question. And it's not to know what goodness is. It's to do it. And we all flounder at that point. We are everlastingly disappointed because we never quite make the grade. That's not to say that we're always wicked because uh, no one in the human race is always wicked. We are all created in the image of God and there's a memory in all of us of uh, what we ought to be and most people aspire to that uh, even though they may be uh, people that are very unlawful, very ungodly people. But the problem is that sometimes we sink to a level that is very, very disappointing to us. And sometimes uh, we can't quite recover from it. And so the question is, how can we deal with, the, with these evil tendencies that we have? And how can we be the kind of people that we want to be? Now, that's the concern that Paul has in this passage. That's what he centers on. 
Now, let's begin looking with uh, looking uh, at this text with uh, verse uh, 13. Uh, in the New American Standard Bible, uh, verse 13 begins with a four, I believe. It's there in the text. And the argument seems to go like this. Uh, Paul is very distressed at those that would lay the law on these people in, in Galatia and frustrate God's work in their lives. He said, I, if they're going to circumcise themselves, they're going to circumcise you. Paul says, I wish they would just go ahead and emasculate themselves. We talked about that passage last week. It's very earthy, but, but you can see the anger in Paul's heart. For, he says, in verse 13, for, because, brothers, you were called to be free. Now, we've been talking about that freedom, as Paul uh, elaborates on it, all the way through the book of Galatians. We are free from uh, our past debt of sin. We're free from a bad conscience. Uh, we're free from the domination and the power of, of sin over us. And though it may shock you to hear this, Paul's argument at this point is you are actually free to sin. You are free to sin without being disapproved by God. Now that sounds very strange. It sounds... Uh, antinomian against the law but that's actually what Paul is saying you can sin and God will still love you you can sin and God will still care about you you can sin and God will still like you you see but as Paul goes on to say don't use that freedom that you have to sin as an excuse to sin but rather as he puts it use your freedom to serve one another in love Service for one another is uh, is the is the responsible attitude that we always ought to have toward other brothers and sisters in Christ. The symbol of Christian living is not a crown; it's a cross. It's a it's a wash basin and a towel, and it's the picture of a servant on his hands and knees washing the the feet of his friends. That's the example that our Lord set. It means that we're not free to abuse people, we're not free to hurt people, we're not free to manipulate people, we're not free to use people, we're free to serve them, to love them. Instead of serving ourselves and caring for ourselves and ministering to ourselves, we've been set free from all the old inclinations that make us center on ourselves, and we've been set free to care about other people. And as Paul goes on to say that once we understand what it means to love people, then we become very, very lawful. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can take all of the Old Testament commandments and they can be, they can be summed up with that one word. That's what it means to be loving. If you love your neighbor, you won't covet his wife. If you love your neighbor, you won't lie to him. If you love your neighbor, you won't bear false witness. If you love your neighbor, uh, you, won't, uh, you won't want to use him or abuse him or hurt him in any way. All of the commandments is summed up in love because that's the character of God. As I've said before, the law is simply a pure expression of the character of God, and God is love. That's why in the Old Testament they didn't glean out the corners of their fields. 
because there were poor people in the land, and that's where they derived their, that's where they got their food. They gleaned in the corners. That's why in the Old Testament you weren't permitted to put away your wife and then take her back and then put her away and take her back because you can't treat a woman like that. You can't treat her like trash. You can't throw her out and then then have her back. All of those commands are summed up in one thought. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And all that Paul has been saying, all we've been talking about, about the grace of God, moves us toward that one conclusion that we have been set free from the past. We've been set free from our own impotence. We've been set free in order to serve and love and care and give ourselves to others. And if we don't understand that, if we use our freedom to exploit others, Paul says, we will end up destroying each other. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by, by each other. It's like the gingham dog and the calico cat. We just uh, eat each other alive. That's the option. See, the option is either to build or to destroy. And what God wants is for us to use that wonderful, incredible freedom that we have to use the, the grace of God and put it to work in order to really care about about others. Now that raises the question again, how? How do you do that? How do you love people like that? When by uh, nature and by inclination we love ourselves first. Uh, John Stott has pointed out that we were created to love God first, our neighbor second, ourselves last. And when we reverse that order and we love ourselves first, it's always our neighbor that suffers. And how do we reverse that order? How do we change things so that we really can care? Well, Paul explains in uh, verses 16 through 18. So I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, if you have an NIV, they have over-translated this phrase. They have it translated, live by the Spirit. That's their interpretation. But the passage actually says, the text actually says, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful flesh. The desires of the flesh to bite and devour and... Uh, to consume one another. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under law. Now, I, I hate to keep correcting the text again. If you have a New American Standard Bible, you'll notice that where I read sinful nature, they have flesh. And for myself, I prefer that word because I don't think Paul is talking about some, some part of us that is inherently sinful. He's not talking about a nature that's sinful. He's really talking about our entire humanity. Now, what, you'll, you'll observe that Paul describes two elements that interact, and they're actually in conflict with one another. There's the flesh, and there's the spirit. Five times he talks about the flesh here, and seven times in the text he talks about the spirit. So it's essential that we understand what the flesh is and what the spirit is. What is the flesh? Is it the skin? Is, is it our bodies? Is it our bodies plus our personalities? What, what is the flesh? Well, the way Paul uses the, uses the term is to refer to our essential humanity. It's what we are and what others have made of us and what we have made of ourselves apart from the grace of God. 
Now, uh, let, let me try and explain a little bit further. We come into the world with certain genetic inclinations. Some, some of us have bad genes. Sometimes those genes show up in physical afflictions. Sometimes they show up in uh, neuroses or psychoses or moodiness or certain inclinations toward habituating uh, uh, actions. We, it's easy for us to fall into certain habits, uh, drug addictions, alcohol addictions. Some people are born with a very, very fierce temper. Other people are born with a, an inclination toward being depressed, gloomy, melancholy. And these are all in the DNA. They're all in the genetic structure. Some people have very good genes. Some people are a combination of very good genes and very bad genes. That's, that's part of our humanity. It's, part, it's because we're, we're part of a fallen humanity that... Uh, we come into the world bent and flawed and, and twisted and distorted. Then we're in a world that is uh, just a community of people that are governed by the flesh, and they're bent too, and so they, they begin to do dreadful things to us. Some of you were, were abused as children as you grew up. You were battered and physically uh, uh, abused. Some of you were sexually abused. People intended to do you harm. It's sometimes hard to realize that that's true, particularly if it's our parents. We, we, don't, we don't want to blame them. We want to take the blame for that. But, but these are, there are people in the world who want to harm you. And uh, perhaps they did. They, they hurt you terribly as you were, as you were growing up. Uh, some of you have gone through disastrous marriages and they have left you uh, wounded. And, and, and there's a lingering hurt that you can't, can't seem to, to get rid of. And then we've done terrible things to ourselves by drinking too much, doing other things, uh, using drugs, uh, burning the candle at both ends so that we've destroyed our health. Now, what we are as a result of our genetic structure, that is our heredity, what we inherited from our forefathers, what others have done to us, what we have done to ourselves is the flesh. It is our essential Humanity. It's everything that you are today apart from the grace of God. Okay, now do you understand that? Is that clear? All right, now let's talk about the Spirit. What is the Spirit? I'm convinced that no one is born with a Spirit. You were not born with a human Spirit. You were born with a body and a personality, mind, emotions, and will. But what you... What you do have is a capacity to contain the character of God, the person of God. Let me state it even more strongly. You have the capacity to contain God. Now, I, I, I envision it as a little sanctuary, actually. It's just a, you know, it just can't be located in space. It's not here or here. But somewhere in your being, there is the, the capacity to contain God. Now, I don't think that's the human spirit. It's just, it's just potential, that's all. Potentiality is there. I envision it as a little room with two rocking chairs. Okay. Now, um, uh, one of the reasons why we're restless and unhappy most of the time is because of that capacity to contain God. It's a very large capacity. And it calls to us. It beckons to us. Um, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who first... Uh, talked about the loneliness of God. 
this notion that God is longing for us. He's seeking us. As Jesus said to the woman at the well, uh, the, the Father is seeking you to worship him, you see. Uh, it's, that, it's that calling. Something is, some voice is calling us imperiously. You know, when, when did you first hear it? Oh, from the very beginning. Why can't you forget it? Because it just keeps calling, keeps calling. And sometimes it hurts so much you can hardly stand it. Mark Twain said, uh, said uh, it's like a heartache. He says, what is this thing? It hurts so much, he says, you, can just, you just can't, can't stand it at times. It makes your heart ache so much. It's a wanting for something more. Uh, Augustine described it like this in his prayer, in, in the first, of, first statement of his confession. So, God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And that restlessness is designed to, to draw us to God. And uh, when we finally come to the place that we realize how much we need him and we ask him to come into our life, we put our hands, put our life in Jesus' hands and we begin to follow him and we ask him to be our Lord and our Savior and we're placed into Christ. Then the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in that sanctuary of our heart, in our heart. And uh, then we have a spirit, you see. Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's, that's our humanity. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It's at that point when you put your faith in Christ and you make him Lord of your life that you are regenerated. You are reborn. You're born again, as Jesus put it, by the Spirit. And the Spirit comes to live in you and he becomes the spirit. That's why I believe the human spirit of those that have been regenerated is the Holy Spirit. Now the conflict is set up. See, in these two elements over here is our basic humanity indwelt by God himself, indwelt by our Lord Jesus Christ. He is not off there somewhere. Once you have accepted Christ as Lord, he comes within to dwell. Paul describes it in another place as a treasure in an earthen vessel. The treasure, the ennobling quality of our life is our Lord Jesus. Come to live within our humanity. That's the mystery and the glory of the gospel. That's what Brendan Manning calls the ragamuffin gospel. That the Lord of glory would come to live in these battered, abused bodies of ours. Now that sets up the conflict, you see, between the Spirit of God, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ who indwells us, and our fundamental uh, humanity. Now it is a conflict. You'll notice how Paul states it. They are in conflict with each other so that you may... Uh, you may not do what you what you choose. I often uh, receive uh, in the mail a little brochure that assures me that if I go to this conference and I learn these five or ten principles, then I will have the key to living the spiritual life successfully. That if I just do these things, then I'll be, spiritually speaking, on easy street for the rest of my life. And I, I often wonder when I read those if those folks have read this passage because as I understand this passage, there aren't any five principles that are going to make it easy. It is a fight. We are not going to a Sunday school picnic. We are in a cosmic struggle. 
And as a matter of fact, uh, if you thought becoming a Christian was going to make life easier for you, you, you may discover, at least on the initial sta- in the initial stages, that it becomes harder because all of a sudden that conflict becomes very, very real. Paul says the same thing in Romans 7, if you'd like to turn back there with me. <clears throat> Paul says, I don't understand myself. Uh, Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Probably suggests that uh, Paul played golf. (laughs) And if I do do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. The mark of uh, the new life is that he... He knows that God's word is good and true. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. Same word. But I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for what I do is not the good I want to do. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And then in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this death? It's what it feels like, boredom and and the pain and uh, the inertia, the the melancholy that sets in when we we can't do what we want to do. And uh, it's just, it's a struggle. So we come right back to the same question. How do we do it? How do we do it? Well, uh, before Paul will answer that question for us, he... uh, describes for us the behavior to which each of these elements is prone. The acts, he says, or the works of the sinful nature in verse 19, and the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. Let's, uh, let's look at, that as the, at those descriptions. Verse 19. Uh, this is what happens when we try harder. Okay. The acts of the flesh are obvious. They're well known. Uh, not so well known on on the front end. I've I've commented before that uh, fictionalized sin always looks very very good. Fictionalized good always looks dull and boring. Fictionalized sin always looks glamorous and exciting. You know, sin on the television program Dallas is not like sin on Skid Row. You know, it's just just different. But in reality, real sin is terribly damaging, terribly hurtful. Whereas real good is exciting. Uh, that's why Paul says the works, the final manifestations of the, of the flesh are, are obvious. They can be seen after a while. Most of you remember the story of the emperor's new clothes. Remember the, the vain emperor and the, and the silly tailors who told him that they were going to make him a suit of clothes, which only the truly noble could see, and, and you know, was, there weren't any clothes. So the king, they, 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 you know, they dressed the king up supposedly and told him how wonderfully he looked. And then because he was supposed, he supposed himself to be noble, he, he thought he saw the clothes. He pretended he saw the clothes and he went out on the streets and he began to walk down the street. And because the people wanted to be noble, they all, they liked the clothes. Until a little boy said, the emperor has no clothes on. And he was exposed for what he, what he was. It became obvious. That's what Paul is saying. Flesh looks good when we begin but this is what it produces and there's several ways this uh, long list of uh, ills and 
misadventures uh, have been uh, divided up. For myself, I think there are three divisions here. He first talks about sexuality. Then he talks about spirituality, sins of the spirit. And then he talks about uh, the social aspect of our life. He begins with, with sexuality. The works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality. That's just the word, our word fornication. It refers to sexual intercourse with someone other than your marriage partner, sex outside of marriage. Impurity, the word means dirty. It's found in a contract uh, in the first century uh, that some apartment dweller had to sign. It said, I will not leave uh, the house dirty when I, uh, when I leave. It means defiled, filthy. There seems to be some progress here, beginning with a specific act toward uh, more defiling acts, more kinkier acts of illicit sexual, uh, of our illicit sexuality, Uh, debauchery, which has the idea of um, a a complete contempt for propriety. In other words, and I think there is progress here, it begins with a single act of sin and then then that act begins to defile our whole being. It shows up in the way we think, in the way we talk, in dirty speech, in subtle sexual innuendo, and in, uh, dirty jokes, and those kinds of things, and the tendency to, then to use uh, filth in public and to shock people and to be totally unconcerned with people's, uh, with people's reaction. I think of Jim Morrison of The Doors, a beautiful example of what Paul is talking about here of someone who longer, no longer cares what people think. Flagrant, flagrant, flouting, or flaunting, rather, of, of, our sexu- of, of illicit sexuality. Uh, those are the sexual sins to which Paul refers. Now, some people say, well, yeah, but Paul, you don't understand. You don't live in our day. You live back when people were more puritanical. And, but now today, uh, in our sex-saturated society, you know, this, this doesn't hold true. Well, people who say that just don't know what was going on in Paul's day. Nero was sleeping with his sister, Drusilla, and, and uh, or, uh, Agrippina, rather, his mother. And, and uh, the, the playwrights of that day were writing plays about homosexuality. One juvenile, one of the playwrights, uh, has Socrates coming on the stage, and he has this long soliloquy, which, we, which begins with the statement, I love boys, and then he describes his affairs with these boys. Plato's Symposium uh, that some of you have read, which seems to be a celebration of human love. It's extolled as one of the highest expressions of human love actually is all about homosexual love. And this was the world in which Paul lived. It was, if anything, worse than we live in today. And yet Paul says, these, these things are wrong. They're wrong. They're hurtful. They're damaging. They're destructive. Uh, idolatry, verse 20, which is the worship of the creator, or pardon me, the worship of creation rather than the creator. Witchcraft, interesting word. Our word uh, pharmaceuticals comes from it. It's the word pharmakeia in Greek. Originally, it just meant medicine. Then it came to be associated with occultism and witchcraft and the dark arts of those days in which they used drugs. The two were, were mingled as they are uh, today. I've commented before that uh, that spirituality and our spirituality and our sexuality are very close. That cleanliness is not next to godliness. Our sexuality is. Two are very closely connected. 
And uh, here he links the two, first sexual sins, then uh, the sins of the spirit. Then uh, social sins, hatred or animosity or enmity. I, I don't know how many of you saw the article in the Statesman this last week about the uh, new uh, personal column in one of the New York papers. Uh, there, it was described as anti-personals in which uh, they said you could vent your hatred on someone that you don't like and uh, women that have been jilted and others uh, put uh, personal notes in the, in the paper about uh, uh, their men. The one that caught my eye was the last one in the list. It said, Dear uh, Herbert, I think his name was, uh, there is a bus leaving for New Orleans at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, be under it, will you? <laughs> but it's that kind of, uh, that spirit of intolerance and, and uh, meanness and, and unforgiving, hostile uh, attitude toward, toward others. Discord, which is the result. It just means quarreling. It's always the product of of animosity, jealousy, and intolerance of rivalry, fits of rage, uncontrolled uh, anger, selfish ambition, uh, dissension. Uh, it is a dividing up into my group and your group, our side of the track and your side of the track. Um, factions. The word actually means prejudice, prejudice against other ethnic groups, prejudice against women or against uh, men. Uh, sexism, elitism, any of the forms of prejudice that, that uh, characterize our world today. Envy, uh, resentment of the good fortune of others. Others do well, they're given a raise, given a, a promotion, and it uh, makes us angry. Drunkenness. Uh, the Bible, as you know, teaches moderation. Uh, Islam teaches abstinence. Uh, both the Old and New Testament teach uh, the moderate use of of alcoholic beverages, but drunkenness is uh, is a sin. Orgies, partying, these last two I think are are, are distortions of the good life. Uh, there are times that we get together that we thoroughly enjoy each other. We just had a staff outing a couple of weeks ago, and we met all day, and we we worked on business items, but then we also just played, had a great time, yucked it up, and laughed, and it was a wonderful time. Those are those are gifts. Uh, from God to, to the human race. But uh, when they turn into orgies and drunken brawls, wife swapping and those sorts of things, I warn you, this is verse 21, as I did before, that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, please understand what he's saying. He's not saying that those who slip into these sins will void their relationship to God. The word that he uses here that's translated live in the NIV is uh, the word from which we get our word practice in English. Our word practice is simply the anglicized form of this word. What Paul is saying is that if we can justify any of these behaviors, if we can defend them, if we pander to them, if we encourage them, if we linger long in the company of people who practice these things, uh, if you can sleep with your neighbor's wife and defend it, and, uh, and justify it. If you can uh, hold uh, an intolerance, if you're unwilling to forgive someone who has hurt you, even though they may have hurt you very, very, uh, very, very badly, if you can do that, you see, there's a good chance that you've never been regenerated. That's what Paul is saying. See? Not saying that you may lose your salvation, 
But he's saying you aren't a Christian. You don't have salvation. Because when the Spirit of God comes into our lives, when he inhabits our flesh, he will not let us get away with defending and protecting those sins. You know what it's like. You may do them, but you feel awful about it. And uh, there's a sense of remorse. And though you may fall again and again into that sin, you do not want it. There is a hunger and a thirst after righteousness in you. That's the mark of someone that's been regenerated. And here's this little warning note. Listen, he says, if you can go on protecting this kind of behavior, if you can commit adultery and go on unscathed and not deal with it and not do something about it and not stop it or want to stop or if, if you have a problem with drunkenness and you're not willing to get help and you go on protecting it, then uh, you may not be a Christian. Now, Paul goes on to describe for us the fruit of the Spirit. And if you'll notice, there's, there is a difference between the works that the flesh produces and the fruit that the Spirit uh, produces. A machine can work, but uh, only the Spirit can produce life. Uh, fruit is a, is a good analogy to what happens because uh, fruit does not, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. I noticed that our uh, grapevines are just now beginning to look a little more lively than they were a couple of weeks ago. And, and I know what will happen. They'll start to put out little leaves and then tendrils, and then the vine will begin to grow, and finally some grapes will be produced. And, and in August, uh, perhaps, and at least in the fall, we'll have some grapes. It takes time, you see. But I know it's working because the life in that vine is beginning to flow through the branches and produce fruit. Later, in verse 25, Paul will say, live since we live by the Spirit. That's what he's talking about, real life. It's going on in our bodies. It's being produced by the Spirit of Christ within us. Let me read this list of fruits of the Spirit. Verse 22, to the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the kind of love that God has for us, the kind of love that doesn't seek anything in return. It just gives. It's joy, a sense of well-being, not giddiness, not silliness but a deep down sense of, of well-being, peace, tranquility, patience. The word literally means a long temper. It takes a lot to ignite it. Kindness is the word I mentioned last week that was used in the ancient world for wine, old wine, mellow. It's not sharp, acerbic, bitter. It's sweet. Uh, goodness, it, that's the, the word, uh, there's several words for good in the New Testament. It's the word that means useful. It's good for something. Faithful, it's reliable, just keeps turning up. Woody Allen said 80% of life is just showing up. I agree. Gentleness, that is, it's non-defensive. Uh, George MacDonald prayed at one point, make me into a rock which swallows up the waves of wrong in its great caverns and never throws them back, to swell the commotion of the angry sea from whence they came. Ah, to annihilate wrong in this way, to say it shall not be wrong against me, so utterly do I forgive it. That's uh, all that's in that, in that term, uh, uh, gentle. And self-control, that is moderate. Against such things there's no law. Who can say anything is bad about this? 
I never saw a law that says thou shalt not love people. Thou shalt not be patient. Thou shalt not tolerate the uh, foibles and failures of others. There are no laws like that in this world. Because, see, we know what's right. We know. We don't have to legislate against things like this. Because they're right. And we know it. And uh, these are the qualities of life that we long for. This is what Charles William called that terrible good. Uh, as kids would say today, it's awesome. When you uh, see someone like this, it's, it's, it's awe-inspiring. And it's, it's what we want more than anything else in the world. Well, the question is how? How? Well, we, we uh, skipped over the, the verse that tells us how. It's in verse 16. Very brief answer. This I say. Do you want to know how to be like this? Do you want to know how to have these qualities and, and to have them abounding in your life? Paul tells us how. Verse 16. I say, this is the word of an inspired apostle who speaks to us with the same authority that our Lord Jesus speaks. This I say, Paul says, walk with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. And you will never, by no means, fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Now, what does it mean? That's the question. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, this is not the kind of experience that happens in a flash of time, in a moment. It's not what happens when you celebrate communion in a candlelit room. It's not the result of an inspiring sermon that uh, gets you up and gets you going. It's not the result of some warm, uh, fuzzy feeling you get when you, when you see some, uh, some uh, word in the truth. It's a much more pedestrian idea. It involves walking. Just walking. If I can put it like this, and I don't mean any dishonor to our Lord, it just means hanging out with Jesus. That's all. You know, I, I don't know um, what it is about just being with people that you like and people that have powerful personalities, but if you just hang around them, you begin to act like they do. You ever notice that? You gesture like they do. You tend to dress like they do, and you tend to replicate their thinking. And it's unconscious. It's not that you decide, I'm going to be like that person. I hang out with uh, my old friend Ray Stedman, and I find myself using the same hand gesture that he uses all the time, you know. And it's just unconscious. Uh, you don't have to be around someone like that very long, and you begin to pick up their habits and their way of dealing with life. That's what Paul's talking about. It's not some magical encounter that changes you overnight. It's not learning ten principles that suddenly revitalize your whole Christian experience. It's this very pedestrian thing of, of just walking, just walking. Day after day after day. You get up in the morning and you hear that, that little voice. Jesus says, come walk with me. Come on, let's walk. And so you meet with him. It involves, I think, the diligent use of what we have called the means of grace. Looking into the word to see his face. Spending some time in prayer to get your thoughts aligned with his. And begin to express your dependence upon him. Fellowshipping with other Christians who will encourage you to... Keep on walking with him, gathering when Christians gather. Those are the means of grace. See, I've distinguished several times between looking at those as the things that render us more favorable to God and looking at those as the things that are means to grace. All the difference in the world. God can't love you any more than he loves you right now 
If you spend two hours in prayer tomorrow, He will not love you any more than He loves you right now. If you aren't able to spend any time in prayer with Him tomorrow, He still loves you, see. You're still approved. But these are the things that keep us clinging to Him. These are the things that keep us walking with Him. So when He calls you tomorrow morning, when He says, as the the psalmist says, Seek my face, then just get out of bed and seek His face. He's calling. That that yearning is His voice voice calling. And then uh, just go on walking with Him through the day. And uh, you'll begin to change. It won't be overnight. And there'll be some parts of, of us, you and me, that won't change until we see his face. Uh, uh, he leaves these things behind, I'm sure, because they're the things that keep us clinging to him and hanging on to him and trusting him with all of our might. But when you fail, it's all right. You're okay. Do you understand? When you fall, as I've said before, you can fall forward. You can pick yourself up and dust yourself off and then just go on walking with our Lord Jesus. Just keep on trusting Him. Keep asking Him to change you. When you fail, and when you harm someone, then go to them and ask for their forgiveness and know that you're forgiven by God. And, and then go on walking with Him. That's what grace means. And one of these days, when we stand before Him, then He's going to deal with this flesh. He's going to take away this body that uh, that has made life so difficult for us. And he's going to give us a new body that doesn't have the old habits and the old genetic damage and all the stuff that's made, made life so hard for us. He's going to give us a body that, uh, that's equal to the demands of, of our spirit. That's our hope. See, that's, what keeps us, that's what keeps us going. I think that's what Paul means in verse uh, 24 when he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus... That's those of us that have put our faith in him. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And I say, whoa, wait a minute. I don't know about you, but the passions and and desires of the flesh are still there. Now, I think what Paul is saying is the battle's already won. It's over. And when Christ died on the cross, we, in effect, died with him. And that settled the issue. Our destiny is not in doubt. The flesh has been dealt with. Sort of like the war in, in the Gulf. You know, the, this, the, the fighting was over, but still a little skirmish is going on. The outcome was certain, but there were still fighting in the streets, you see. The struggle is still going on, but I just, I want you to understand that your destiny is determined. It's fixed, and that's what enables you to get up when you fail and get going again, because that's not the end of the story. The end of the story comes at the end of our life. Or when our Lord Jesus comes back, and then when we see him, we'll be like him. I uh, was talking to a coach friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, football coach here in town. Always says some interesting things, and uh, he said, my goodness, it'd be great to be playing in a game where the outcome is already fixed. You know, if I knew I had the game in the bag before we went on the field, it sure would set you free. You you could play with abandon uh, because you knew that, uh, that you were playing a game that's already won. And then he made the analogy to the Christian life. He said, that's, that's, what, that's what renders the Christian life playable for me. Because I know the outcome. We've already won. And uh, he set me thinking, and I sat down and wrote a, wrote a column. Uh, it was supposed to be in the paper this Sunday, but I got edged out. 
And uh, <clears throat> so I'm going to give you a sneak preview, okay? <laughs> Sorry to inflict more of my stuff on you, but uh, so let's take a second. Knowing that my destiny is fixed helps me play the game with utter abandon. I can drop a few balls. I can face up to my fumbles and foul-ups. I can take the hard hits and the sacks. I can lose ground. The times I get booed and benched don't hurt quite so much. Outhouse or penthouse, as they say, it's all the same. Unsportsmanlike conduct, late hits, cheap shots, unnecessary roughness may hurt and hinder me. Bad calls may set me back, but no one can alter the outcome of the game. I can stay loose and play with determination and delight because I know the outcome is fixed and fixed in my favor. My favor, my destiny isn't determined by the next play, but by God's grace and his gift of forgiveness in Jesus. Struggle and failure are inevitable. Adversity and reversal is the name of the game. But if I'm teamed up with Jesus, I'm playing a game that's already won. Let's pray. What a victory you've wrought in the cross. And not only did you deal with our sin, but you have dealt with the fundamental problem of our sinfulness. That bent that we have toward resistance to you. You have crucified the flesh and all of its passions and desires. What freedom we enjoy. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.